0: We are very interested in bringing a whole suite of different technologies into the enterprise, into the school, into a hospital that can help create a truly healthy building, defined as everything from person-to-person infection to the purity of the air, to you know performance metrics like carbon dioxide, humidity, temperature, things like that.
1: Welcome to the Five Year Frontier podcast, a preview of the future through the eyes of the innovators shaping our world. Through short, insight-packed interviews, I seek to bring you a glimpse of what a key industry could look like five years out. I'm your host, Daniel Darling, a venture capitalist at Focal, where I spend my days with founders at the very start of their journey to transform an industry. The best have a distinct vision of what's to come, a guiding North Star they're building towards, and that's what I'm here to share with you. In today's episode, we're talking biosecurity and securing our environments from disease and viruses. In it, we cover the power of light to disinfect and protect our indoor spaces, advances in sensor technologies and data to pick up on future pandemics, risk modeling for real estate operators and the insurance industry, all the way to biosecurity at our borders and protecting humans as they travel through outer space. Guiding us will be Ben Boyer, co founder of R Zero builds autonomous systems that disinfect indoor environments using UV light. Founded in response to COVID, R0 has become a leader in leveraging light, sensors and data to keep our environment safe from disease, deploying their technology in hospitals, schools, offices and with the government. This year, they raised over $100 million from the likes of Qualcomm, Mayo Clinic and Upfront Ventures. In addition to R0, Ben is co-founder of Tanaya Capital, a growth-stage venture firm with over $1.5 billion under management, backing technology companies such as Lyft, Kayak, and PlanGrid, amongst others. Welcome, Ben. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you uh, for having me. I'm excited to uh, have the opportunity to chat with you. So I'd like to open the conversation just with a primer on a cornerstone technology that enables R0, which is light, more specifically ultraviolet light. So how does that work to disinfect and combat airborne diseases? So, when
0: we started R0, it was initially a response to COVID, and uh, my co-founders and I weren't entirely sure how we wanted to help organizations respond, but we knew something needed to be done simply because no one knew what to do back in March and April of 2020. And we started the journey of R0 by spending a lot of time speaking to people that work at hospitals. We had a thesis that ever since the advent of the hospital, it's the one communal gathering place for the sick. And if generally speaking, you and I can go into a hospital and receive care, despite the fact within the four walls, they've got all different pathogens, C. mode, MERSA, COVID, then maybe they know how to mitigate the spread. And so we became students in infection prevention. We expected to find um, a lot of technology. What we learned was there isn't. But what limited technology we, we did come across was UVC light. And I wish I could tell you I was an expert in UVC light at that point. I was not. I knew it was germicidal, and that was truly the extent of my understanding of the technology. But I did a deep dive on it, and I fell in lo- love with it. So it's very old. The first germicidal lamps came to market in the late 1800s. The Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to a doctor named Neil spinson in 1903 for his work with germicidal UV. It's been used to treat wastewater since the 1910s, HVAC since the 1920s. Um, and systems like an uh, first product uh, first showed up in hospitals in the 1950s. Um, the reason why it's been um, so widely um, uh, utilized in, in, in a variety of different disinfection manners is because there's no pathogen on the face of the earth that has any resistance to UVC life So you hear about antibiotic-resistant bacteria, that does happen. You can even get resistance from chemical applications. So putting those Clorox wipes to use over and over again, you sometimes can create these superbugs where they are resistant. But UVC is inactivating the pathogen at the RNA and the DNA level. And so long as the laws of physics maintain, you're, you're not going to see the same issues with resistance and it can inactivate any pathogen type it's just a, a question of the amount of energy that's required to inactivate and inactivate is, is effectively kill these things are not alive and but but what they do do is replicate and the process of inactivation prevents replication if you prevent replication then uh, eventually they go away and that's effectively how you disimpact a space
1: fascinating it sounds like such an elegant Solution. So, has the light spectrum at all changed or evolved over time since those very early days?
0: Yeah. So, light, the the spectrum of light that UVC occupies starts at about two hundred nanometers and it goes up to about two hundred eighty nanometers. Those are all, all reassembly short wavelengths of, of light that are very energy intensive. The very first germicidal UV lamps were around two hundred fifty four nanometers of, of wavelength. That, to, to this day, remains, I would say, the most widely used wavelength of UVC light. It's very inexpensive to uh, deploy a UVC system at the 254 nanometer wavelength. 4 is a, is a good wavelength that's very germicidal. 265 has now emerged um, as being another wavelength where we're seeing a lot of new products. Our, our second product that we brought to market, which is an air disinfectant unit, Utilizes LEDs that produce 265 nanometer light. What's unique about 265 nanometers is it's even more germicidal than 254. It is peak germicidal, so there's no wavelength of light that's actually more germicidal. The, the real innovation, though, has come from work from a, a very famous radiologist at Columbia University, my guy got it the name of Dr. David Brenner, who works down in the 222 nanometer, nanometer range. Um, Dr. Brenner, before COVID, um, theorized that um, these shorter wavelengths of light would be germicidal and they would also be safe for human um, interaction. And And he did a bunch of research and, and effectively discovered what we now call far UV. And far UV is light that's emitted right around that 222 nanometer wavelength. And it turns out it's it's even more germicidal than 254 nanometer light, slightly less than 265. But perfectly human safe. So the science is showing us that 3000 hours of exposure to 222 nanometer light does less cellular damage to skin and eye cells than 10 minutes in the sun on a mild spring day. The significance of this can't be understated. With, with 254 nanometer light, 265 nanometer light, you, you can't have humans interact with the light. Um, so we built systems that are perfectly safe, but they're designed to either operate above people. So creating a zone of radiance above where people would, would interact with the light or to be utilized in a room without people there. With 222 nanometer light, we could put a, a light fixture in a room. If you guys, if you and I were not on a Zoom, a Zoom call, having this conversation, but rather sitting across from my desk, we could have a light separating us with 222 nanometer light. And so long as um, that light is on, there's some level of disinfection um, or infection prevention happening between the two of us as I'm breathing, as I'm talking um, in the light.
1: Fascinating. And so... If that's solving the the question that people naturally have, which is, is it safe to always have on and with humans in the room, are we just on a natural path to having this included in every single light bulb and every single building? It sounds a little bit like a no-brainer in terms of the value that it brings.
0: Yeah, I do believe that is the future, I mean, 22 nanometer for UV is very, very new. There's only a handful of companies globally that can produce the light. We're one of them, and we're very proud of all of the IP that we have that, that uh, allows us to, to operate a system at two hundred twenty-two nanometers of, of light. The more prevalent applications of UVC today are safe, but there are caveats. So the first product that we brought to market is a product called ARC. It's a whole room disinfecting unit. So think about After the surgical theater is used for a procedure, you remove the patient. You're going to clean the room. When you're done with that, you could run a disinfection. And and we have a product that's very well suited for that. It's incredibly powerful. It's the most powerful product on the market. And we can disinfect a thousand square foot room to a floor log reduction or 99.99%. In seven minutes. So very, very quick. Um, but the way you operate that product, um, is you're not in the room when it's, when it's actually operating. So, or when it's being utilized. So you would push it into a room, um, and then, uh, set the cycle. There's a countdown timer. Where you leave the room. Um, if you don't leave the room, the system won't operate. So we have put redundant uh, 360 degree sensors in the product that prevents, you know, any sort of harmful interaction. And in our history, we've not had a single adverse event with any of our products. The second product we brought to market is an upper room germicidal UV product. What's interesting about this is um, this was a product that was used in the measles epidemic very successfully, and and we read about the science or the research that showed that there was a Dr. Wells, his application of this in Philadelphia schools saw an 80 to 90% reduction in the spread of of epidemic measles. And and the system that he put in place was very simple. What we decided is we'll just build a better version of that. So ours uses LEDs. It consumes about as much energy in a year as a laptop. And it also has um, safety sensors. So um, again, this is a, a wavelength of light you wouldn't want to interact with. That's why we install it um, in eight or nine feet. To the extent someone uh, inadvertently, you know, crosses the path of the light or goes to change the light, bulb, the sensors deactivate the light, so it prevents any sort of human interaction. You have to restart it. But that product is incredible because we have a customer that's achieved. 18 equivalent air changes per hour with one light, which is unheard of. That's not something that HVAC systems can be architected to, or at least any HVAC system that you're going to interact with would be architected to. And we are able to achieve that with with one light. And so I believe that that manifestation of the technology will go on for a long time. But I think at some point, all of this will eventually move into this far UV spectrum. The reason why it hasn't happened sooner is it's pretty expensive to uh, generate the light source we have to use what's called a krypton chloride lamp um, and it produces this wide spectrum of UDC that's bunched up around 222 nanometers so it gives you what you're looking for but it also gives you stray wavelengths which are not human safe and so all of the ip in the space is really around how do you prevent um, how do you get to good and prevent the bad? And so we use a monochromatic filter um, that is filtering out higher wavelengths of, of UVC but allowing the 222 nanometer to pass. It's a material science's challenge to do that. It's not easy. But over time, you know, we hope and expect that there will be solid state versions of that light source. And in which case, I think you can start running down the cost curve. And yeah, we could put that everywhere.
1: Amazing. And it sounds like, aside from the light component, that sensors play an incredibly important role here, both in terms of detecting if someone is in the room, close to the um, light source, but also is there advancements alongside around detecting any pathogens in the room, whether it's are they present or even what they are? Sure.
0: There, there definitely is. I would say there's not historically been a lot of, of interest, at least uh, with U.S. companies, of knowing what's in their spaces. And that's really because of liability. You know, it's it's one of those things I think everyone does want to know, but they don't want to know. Um, because what does it mean if you are starting to attack that you have COVID or that you have RSV? What are the safety measures that you are supposed to undertake? There's no regulatory body that says this is what you're supposed to do. And so I think, you know, at some point that probably takes off. It probably starts in healthcare and ultimately I think becomes more generally accepted. But I think thus far, that the, the the science is 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 getting there where it's getting cheaper and cheaper to have the capability but we need we we, we need sort of the private sector to, to to want it the way we've solved that piece if if you will is really to talk about a space based on risk as opposed to based on a particular packaging type. The way we we look at risk is we've created a risk model. And this risk model allows us to score a space based on its physical attributes. Um, so we look at the ceiling, I, we look at the type of HVAC system, so the, the number of air changes per hour, what the MERV rating is, or what the level of filtration um, that you're getting out of that product. Um, we look at measures of density. Um, we have occupancy sensors, so we can tell you where people are where they're not. We can count people, we can show density, things like that. We're in the process of rolling out IQ sensors to allow our customers to get visibility in their space from an environmental perspective as well. All of that feeds the risk model. And what we can tell our customers is, look, in a space with these type of attributes, if you have a person sick with COVID or influenza or RSB or whatever, the probability of spread to another person is X. And we can reduce that amount by a, a, a significant portion by applying our technology strategically. We use the risk model to determine the highest areas of risk. And then we uh, strategically place the products to reduce that risk by the greatest amount.
1: And it sounds like hospitals is a natural setting for this type of technology. But what about the rest of the private sector? Where are enterprises in their adoption curve of this technology? And have you seen a massive acceleration given that COVID is probably still fresh in people's minds?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the healthcare has been probably our most robust space that in education. So we've seen a lot of interest from, from education and the education part makes a lot of sense. You know, schools in the U.S. are funded based on us in the sea. And so you're actually penalized because of absenteeism and things like that. What we're seeing right now is there are schools closed down in Texas, Kentucky and Oklahoma because of COVID. Yeah, once again. And so those are schools that will be penalized. They're doing all the right things. You should, you know, know, shut the the school down if if it's not safe. But, you know, the goal should be how do we create a space that's more resilient and able to better mitigate the spread of these uh, infectious diseases? And, and, you know, the, there is a lot of interest and in, 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 I would say some some very strong adoption coming out of there. The enterprise, I believe, ultimately will will be every bit as big as those other spaces. The reality is, you know, enterprise slash commercial real estate, I think they're struggling through the range separate issues. So commercial real estate in the U.S., Is under a lot of strain and the enterprise is largely to blame because of of this, this new sort of hybrid work uh, model or just pure work from home. And it's obviously not everywhere, but it's pretty prevalent in a lot of places. And even if it's not a, a true, you know, work from home environment. In your hybrid, you no longer need the the real estate assets that you once did in the old model, where we always went to the office every Monday through Friday. And so, you know, ultimately, I think we can be part of the solution set for the hybrid environment, where you have a smaller space and it's perhaps way more denser. So the risk is actually much higher when you're sharing spaces in, in, in that type of environment. But we do have some customers on the enterprise that have adopted it. But I think a lot will. I think we'll see a lot more pull from those type of, of organizations when commercial real estate settles settles down a little bit.
1: If you project out a couple of years, do you think the competition around commercial real estate and sort of attracting tenants to that will be around a healthier indoor environment and trying to get more front of mind, whether it's flu season in the winter or you know f- protection, I guess, against the next pandemic and being able to operate functionally as an organization um, during those times. Yeah,
0: very much so. There's a pretty famous professor at Harvard, uh, Joseph G. Allen. He wrote a book called um, Healthy Buildings. And um, he looked at um, the investment in human health at at sort of a building level and whether or not it was a good investment. Um, And ultimately, this is before COVID, and um, he showed very clearly it is that businesses that uh, make the investment in in health are able to in good times charge a premium uh, for uh, the real estate, and in bad times can maintain uh, their 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 leases when you start seeing vacancy rates go up. And you know it's interesting. We talk a lot about infection risk, but a healthy building is also one where you know carbon dioxide is managed, and you you have enough outdoor air that you know the CO2 levels you know don't get too high. In Joseph Allen's book, they looked, they did a study where it was actually workers, it wasn't students, but they asked them to do a tests. It was you know demographically very similar workers in company. And one building had much higher CO2 levels than the other, and the performance was very statistically significantly better for those with the lower CO2. That would be exactly the same for a school. And you think about how important testing is for schools and and performance of students as well as performance of, of schools and districts. And so, you know, we are very interested in bringing a whole suite of different technologies into the enterprise, into the school, into a hospital that can help create a truly healthy building defined as everything from person-to-person interaction to, to, to the purity of the air to, you know, performance metrics like carbon dioxide, humidity, temperature, things like that.
1: And such an incredible value proposition. Be healthier and perform better and hold more sort of time on seat, um, whether you're a classroom or a... Um, Employer, what are the missing pieces in the technology stack that need to be ironed out over the next five years to make this really pervasive?
0: Yeah, so today, our 0 is a sensor business. We have occupancy sensors, and in November, we'll have IAQ, a software business. So we have our own risk model, and uh, we have an application layer that provides visibility and analytics into the built environment so our customers can, can see the space. And then we have the disinfection products. We have three different ones. They all do something slightly different. And there's not a, if you buy this, it will solve all your problems. It really is something where we, we, we basically build the phone for each of our customers. And what I think that this collective provides is a really strong understanding of a space, how it's used. and and then remediation and protection from a person-to-person infection perspective. Where you'll see us go next beyond this is really on the IQ side, building upon how we protect and purify the air. So I think the future of our 0 will be a filtration product as well. That is something that that, that we're working on right now. And so I I expect in the future, you'll see us not only offer the UVC product line, but also filtration um, as well. Once we have IQ sensors, occupancy sensors, the, the software layer, uh, purification products, disinfection products, you know, we've done a, I, I think a tremendous amount to deal with the fundamental issues, uh, you know, within a, within the built environment. There's a lot of automation now that we can build on top of that, where we're interacting with the HVAC unit, um, or we're potentially interacting with the lighting system. Um, where I, we don't necessarily want to go build an HVAC unit, you know, carrier, or train, honey, uh, well, they, they do fine there if that's not of any interest to us. But um, our data should impact how that system is operated, and that should be an API call. And so, a really good example of that. Um, is if our CO2 sensors are showing that uh, levels are getting to a point where there's a problem, you know, one is we can notify our customer open some windows. But two, there should be an automatic API connection into the HVAC system to pull more outside air. That should be automated. We are building into our software layer measures of sustainability and, and energy consumption. And so, again, our occupancy sensors tell us where people are and they're not that data should feed into a a building automation or a lighting system such that we can turn those lights off when they're not being used or dim them. And so I think once we build purification from a hardware perspective, and I think in launched IQ sensors, I think a lot more of what we do will be on the automation side.
1: Incredible. And it sounds like a huge amount of data being collected of all different types from there. If you had to fast forward a little bit about the value of that data and what you could unlock, for building owners, or even just the health industry in general, um, what have you thought about in that space?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I think there's there's going to be a tremendous amount of asset value to the data that's created. I think one of the ways that I would be excited about I'm trying to exploit it for our zero, like really for the benefit of our customers, is to go to insurance companies. I think once we can start showing the body of evidence that you know organizations that you know, build this level of protection into the space, we'll see less infections. Um, and we, we know it definitively it will happen. All of the studies that have been that, that have looked at at the application at UVC or looked at the application of high levels of filtration in space indicate that there is less illness. And, and if we can start quantifying that, I would love it if an R0 customer actually has lower insurance premiums, knowing that those employees are going to get sick less often.
1: And you mentioned that the light really prevents the replication of these viruses. Is it too forward thinking to think that we'll be able to have a kind of shield or a personal light shield in the future where, you know, I feel quite confident that I can walk and have a meeting with someone who might be sick and maybe not catch it?
0: Yeah, there's there's actually a company that they try to create, create excuse me, this there's a 4UD emitter, small and it would shine in your face to do just just that. The issue with the product is it, it, it did not have that monochromatic filter. So while it was in fact providing some le- level of protection, you were actually exposing yourself to your, the, some of those higher wavelengths of UVC. And so we could build that product. I, I think the, the world's probably not ready for all of us to walk around with a device you put down. And, and you just think culturally, it's going to take time to get there. I think in the interim we're going to do a lot of very interesting things in the ceiling with down light. and so we're working we have a fixture right now it's a wonderful product called five which you know you can put it in a restroom and it would automatically continuously disinfect that restroom um, so odor causing bacteria so think about the smell factor of a restaurant we can get rid of that um, maintain some level of disinfection on all the surfaces that could also very easily you know exist in a can light, a different a version of that and, and I think that'll be the next step in the evolution of bringing that type of technology that always on a uh, level of protection in space. But yeah, it is possible we could either have a device on our, our neck pointing up or you could have something on the desk in between you. Technically, it's it's very feasible. I'm just not sure what the market's there yet.
1: Well, wow, I'm just thinking of a, a mask that is actually made of light, which is, which is pretty fascinating concept. So... The US, we've talked about, but maybe other markets such as China or parts of Asia where they take hygiene and sort of protection against diseases incredibly seriously as a huge mask usage there um are you seeing a quicker adoption curve or faster rollout of this kind of technology in those markets
0: yeah so today we're only in the us and not because we haven't had inbound interest from international customers but but ultimately we're, we're still a small company and so the goal is let's let's win locally, and then we can expand. Um, We are in the process of of launching our first international markets. Canada will be first. It's it's, uh, from a regulatory perspective, quite different from the US. Um, Obviously, culturally very, similar. um, It's easy to um, to support the Canadian market. Within Asia, Japan is exactly as you described it. So very forward thinking with regards to hygiene. And they are uh, big adopters of the far UV spectrum. So it's a really great market. And they're building, I, I believe, a lot of resiliency in their built environment, which is awesome. Korea, a little bit less so, but again, good market. And I think it's showing indications of being like Japan. China has, has, has I would say, not updated the regulations as it pertains to what the latest science is showing for the different wavelengths of UBC. Keeping
1: it at the country level... And looking at more biosecurity, this seems to have some pretty obvious uh, use cases within government, Department of Defense, um, you know, the threat of biological attacks. What have you seen in and around that space in terms of the innovations or what could be around the corner there?
0: Yeah, so we just launched our, our government sort of, sort of market. So we're very early, early days there. And you're exactly right. Right right now, there's a lot of interest from the Department of Energy. And the reason why they're so focused on UBC is because the built environment produces a huge percentage of greenhouse gases globally. It's, I think, about 35% of all greenhouse gases come from the felt environment. And most of that is from HVAC. And so heating and cooling a large building is, is is very expensive from an energy consumption perspective. And most organizations post-COVID have decided they want more filtration, so higher levels of MERV rating, which means even more energy to push air through a finer filter and more Outside air, which means you're spending more on energy to heat and cool. So that 35% of greenhouse gases could get to 40 or 45%. And so the Department of Energy is been laser focused on, you know, not trying to address the, the infection of air through sort of filtration alone, but rather supplementing it with technologies like ours, which are, you know, very energy efficient. The, the beam product we developed uses LEDs. I'm hoping that that some of that work ultimately helps us with with defense. Defense, you know, track something called military readiness, uh, which is at any given time what percentage of armed forces are in a position to react and do something. And the reality is, with waves of COVID, you can lose important pieces of, of, of that. And historically, you know, in the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, I think it was the British troops. It was a large percentage of them got norovirus and were knocked out of the ability to participate for a good period of time. The virus is a very contagious virus. It's an interesting one insofar as it can live a long time on the surface or it almost acts like a bacteria. But systems like the ones that we've developed can absolutely help. Protect military assets and ensure that that readiness number is as high as possible. There are also products that could be brought into the field. And so, you know, back during the first Gulf War, there was a lot of concerns around biologics and the use of chemicals. And, and so, if it is a biologic, we we absolutely can inactivate it and be part of that solution.
1: And keeping on the frontier, is this also similar technology that's of interest to the space industry and sort of our? lofty quest of being a multiplanetary species
0: yeah I mean I think it's it's definitely something that you would want to have uh, in, in the in, in a space environment as well I mean they're talking about very close quarters. Where you know, to the extent you do have someone that goes out there with an illness, you're able to, to mitigate the, the spread of it. And I know they do a lot to ensure that there's not you know mold spores and the like that that develop. But the longer we we spend time in space, the more likely you are to introduce those sort of things. You know, ultimately, it is the new built environment; it just looks different and it flips. Um And uh, and and obviously, you know, the technology that we develop could provide the same level of protection within a space capsule than it can within a classroom.
1: Amazing, and just switching gears a little bit, you're a professional VC, you've got a successful firm um, with Tanaya Capital um, in addition to R0. What are you seeing in terms of other innovations or applications uh, within the light space or maybe just in biosafety in general? Yeah, I mean I, I,
0: I honestly don't see a ton of innovation within within biosafety in general. I think this is a pretty much a new space, despite the fact we've known about how to protect a space or protect people within a space for over a hundred years. It was not until COVID came that we really could start having conversations around the built environment and what that meant for, you know, our safety. You know, the humans are very much an indoor species. We spend 90% of our time indoors. You know, the human body will consume three to four liters of water a day, but we're breathing, you know, 15 to 20,000 breaths. Well, those three to four wa- uh, liters of water are disinfected. A lot of times with UVC, there's chemicals, but there's very strict regulations to ensure that you're not going to get sick from your drinking water. There's none for the you're breathing and you're doing it a lot more often. And I think, you know, Scientists understood this before, you know, you know. Joseph G. Allen understood this before, but it's now finally, you know, the head of HR and, and a large company, or the head of real estate, or the head of facilities, that I think is starting to recognize that the decisions that they make for their employees are the ones that are going to determine if they're healthy or if they end up getting sick. And so, I think the innovation is still to come. I don't think we're. I think we're very much at ground zero of, of revolutionizing this
1: incredible innovation that's happened already, but it sounds like even more to come and, and, and a wealth of opportunity um, and market adoption ahead. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been a really interesting um, conversation and really appreciate you discussing it with us today. Thank you, Daniel. It's a really yeah. my pleasure to be on today's show. How fascinating to learn from Ben today. The developments in biosecurity and light spectrum technology is at such an interesting inflection point and he's spearheading the change from both the investment perspective as well as the operating vantage point with R0. And it's clear we're on a path where UV light will be universally applied to indoor settings that fight off viruses and increases the overall quality of our indoor environments, hyper-relevant in this era of global pandemics. If you're launching a software startup in this industry, reach out to us. We'd love to hear about it. You can reach me on danieldarling at focal.vc. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and please subscribe to the podcast to listen to more coming down the pipe. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.